official Israeli flag is flying in the analytics page, the lovely Israel flag. Welcome Israel. We welcome you, welcome home, we love you, we appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in to this show and the other one. We appreciate your support. Welcome back to the Global Family Village. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you all. This will be a previously recorded episode that was recorded earlier today on another program, on another podcast, the sister podcast to this one, an even bigger fly on the wall. The title... Well, first, the number is number 447, and it's Orlando, Florida. A young black man was found hanging there. And before that story, there will be videos, some PSA-type videos and other just current events in the news videos. So enjoy. Um, It's about a 59 minute episode, so it's going to take about an hour and we'll listen together and learn and I will be working while I listen listen doing doing some things here I hope I'm not making too much noise but (laughs) life happens life gets noisy sometimes so we'll turn the volume up up as far as it will go thank you again appreciate you Americans who were held in internment camps during World War II. They each got $20,000. But African Americans have never gotten reparations for their 246 years of slavery. Lawmakers have introduced bills in Congress to study reparations and whether it's possible, but most have never gotten very far. In 2008, the House of Representatives issued an apology for slavery. And in 2019, bills to study and develop a proposal for reparations were introduced into both houses of Congress. But the legislation languished. Recently, there's been renewed interest, like the Harriet Tubman Community Investment Act, which the Maryland General Assembly is considering. The Brookings Institution says it could be a possible blueprint to what reparations could look like for black Americans. Under this act, the descendants of slaves in Maryland could receive the following repayments. Tracing the descendants of slaves will be one major challenge. Unlike victims of the Holocaust and Japanese internment camps, there are not a lot of paper trails for the descendants of slavery. The census didn't count black Americans until 1870. And unlike immigrant groups who have their history documented at Ellis Island, there's no central historical database for the descendants of slaves. You have to know where to look to find it. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful trans... It is there. You have to know where to look. No president in history has ever refused to hand over power to the next. But there have been a few closely contested presidential elections. The presidential election isn't really a national election. Rather, it's 51 separate elections. If a candidate wanted to contest the results, they would have to go to the state courts first. 
there are constitutional issues, only then could the case go to the Supreme Court. In the 2000 presidential race between George W. Bush and Vice President Al Gore, Bush won the electoral vote by a slight margin. In that election, some ballots in Florida were not punched out properly, making it difficult to determine who a voter had selected. Bush's side fought to dismiss those ballots, while Gore's side wanted a manual recount. The case made its way to the Supreme Court, which ruled in Bush's favor. Gore peacefully conceded, and Bush became America's 43rd president. In highly partisan times like now, lawsuits about election outcomes are likely to become more common. But no matter how contested an election is, the Constitution requires the president and vice president to end their terms of office on January 20th. If they refuse to leave, well, that's an issue that we've never seen.
Jane is also running and gets 33%, while Donna gets 31%. Even though the majority of voters, 64%, did not vote for John, he still wins because he's the single candidate with the highest number of votes. In most states, congressional elections are decided by first-past-the-post voting. The presidential election is not. It's decided by the Electoral College, which makes it a hybrid of first-past-the-post and a majority system of voting. First-past-the-post was inherited from the Brits back when America was a colony. Supporters say it's easy for voters to understand, easy to count ballots, and cheap to administer. But critics say voters choose the candidate they dislike the least. Candidates get elected with a small amount of support, and one party tends to win the majority of seats. Maine uses a different system to decide its congressional elections. Ranked choice voting. Voters rank the candidates in order of choice. For a Senate race, for example, it won't make a difference because there's only one winner. But for a city council or state legislature, it more accurately reflects voters' choices. In addition to Maine, Utah and Virginia are phasing in ranked choice voting. While America's first-past-the-post system is a holdover from the Brits, parts of the UK have moved on to a different system, including Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. Some of the most high-profile court cases start with a grand jury, but while most juries look like this, a grand jury does not even involve a trial. A grand jury is used to decide if there's enough evidence to support a criminal charge, and specifically what charges. Grand juries essentially do triage or intake on a case, and usually only look into serious felonies like murder, rape, or kidnapping. In a trial, charges have already been presented, and it's the jury's job with the judge mediating to decide whether the defendant is guilty or innocent. While a trial jury usually has 6 to 12 people, a grand jury can have as many as 16 to 23 people. The prosecutor presents the case and evidence. The grand jury may request that the court submit further evidence, including witness testimony and subpoenas of documents. Unlike a trial, grand juries operate almost entirely in secret. The press is not allowed into the room, and neither is the public. This allows the defendant and witnesses to speak freely without injuring their reputation if the jury decides not to indict. Witnesses, however, are generally allowed to discuss their testimony. Unlike trial juries, grand juries do not need a unanimous decision to indict. They just need a supermajority, like two-thirds or three-fourths, depending on the jurisdiction. The prosecutor is expected to act in good faith, but with no judge present and the grand jury closed to the public, there's concern about transparency. Grand juries have faced criticism in cases of police brutality. That was the case during the grand jury proceedings into the Tamir Rice case. 12-year-old black boy who was shot and killed by police in 2014. The grand jury cleared the officer of any criminal wrongdoing. He was killed for holding a toy gun. One solution to prevent wildfires in the West? More fires. Sounds counterintuitive, right? It's one of the strongest solutions out there, but history doesn't make it easy to do. Controlled fire or prescribed fire is the method of burning certain land to reduce wildfire hazards. This method was developed by Native Americans thousands of years ago. In California, natives like the North Fork Mono tribe used fire as a tool for clearing land for farming, increased production of bushes and berries, herd wildlife during hunts, and reduced the fuel load that could cause devastating wildfires. It was these low-intensity fires called cultural burnings that built much of California's forests, not lightning as is commonly believed. Without controlled burns, forests would have become overgrown and unmanageable. Overgrown forests create a lot of fuel in the form of dry or dead plants. As European colonization grew in California, native tribes were banned from engaging in cultural burning. And over time, state and federal authorities focused on quickly extinguishing any wildfires. For example, the U.S. Forest Service infamous 10 a.m. policy said that any fires that occurred must be put out by 10 a.m. the next day. This limit on fires did little to reduce the fuel that was growing on the forest floor. And even with these policies, California still has fuel loads waiting to be burned from centuries ago, making prescribed burning far more tedious and expensive than previously thought. As home developments increase in and near forest lands, there's little incentive for more prescribed fires at the risk of them becoming uncontrollable. Those studies shows that happens less than 1 100th percent of the time. Climate change is also making fires in the West bigger and longer lasting. Still, thousand-year-old tradition of prescribed burning remains one of the strongest solutions to preventing future wildfires. Herd immunity is the key to beating COVID-19, but we're a long way from it. <laughs> Herd immunity happens when enough people in a population have recovered from a disease and developed natural protection, stopping its spread. When you're exposed to a new disease, white blood cells make specific fight-ready proteins called antibodies. 
They fight the invading germs, so once exposed, your body makes memory cells. If you're exposed again, your body can fight it off. For COVID-19, doctors estimate that 60 to 80% of the human population would need antibodies to have herd immunity as a species. For herd immunity to happen without a vaccine, it would still take a very long time to achieve, and many more would die. At the beginning of the pandemic, instead of shutting down like most of its European neighbors, Sweden took a softer approach and didn't require much social distancing in hopes of gaining herd immunity. In May, the country only achieved 15% immunity versus the expected 40% from the Swedish government. And by September, Sweden had one of the highest deaths per 100,000 people in Europe. Herd immunity could still be achieved safely through a vaccine, allowing our bodies to build antibodies without risking further spread. Chickenpox, measles, mumps, and polio are all diseases from which we have achieved herd immunity because of vaccines. On top of that, mask wearing builds herd immunity. People who wear masks could still get COVID-19, but at much lower rates. If they do get it, they're often less sick or have no symptoms. So mask wearing could also help safely increase the number of people who are immune before the vaccine without significantly raising the death rates. Despite testing more than any other country, the U.S. is still not testing enough for COVID-19 and the number of infections and deaths continue to climb. According to the University of Oxford, the best tool to understand if countries are testing sufficiently is to look at the positive rate, the share of tests returning a positive result. It's helpful because it indicates the level of testing relative to the size of the outbreak. Think of it like a fraction. The number of total tests performed is the denominator and the number of positive tests is the numerator. Let's say there are two countries, country A and country B. Both tested 10,000 people for COVID-19. Country A had 500 out of the 10,000 tests turn out positive, meaning it has a 5% positive rate. Country B had 1,000 positive tests out of 10,000, meaning it has a 10% positive rate. If the positive cases grow and the number of tests performed remain the same, that could indicate that the virus is not under control. The World Health Organization says a positive rate of less than 5% indicates adequate testing. Some countries have a positive rate of below 1% in combination with widespread testing and contact tracing. As of August 23rd, the U.S. had a 6.5% positive test rate, which is above the WHO's recommended benchmark. COVID-19 testing is the window to the disease. Without it, we wouldn't know how many people are positive or how many have gained immunity. It enables doctors and healthcare professionals to alert individuals for treatment and quarantine. The bigger the window, the more of you you have. That's why random testing is also important, according to the U.S. National Library of Medicine. Instead of just focusing COVID-19 tests on those who are exhibiting severe symptoms or those who have been in contact with someone who tested positive, focus on testing as many people as possible, randomly. It's also important that authorities use consistent and reliable testing data to accurately gauge the progress of the disease. our hills. Since America's early days, gold has been a driving force in our economy, and during the COVID-19 pandemic, investors are turning their focus again to this precious metal. Gold's value in America dates back as far as the 1800s when miners rushed to California seeking their fortunes. Those small nuggets or flakes torn from the earth helped drive westward expansion and the nation's economy. Gold holds its value better than paper money and is less volatile than the stock market. It's literally one of the earliest forms of currency. Gold is relatively widely available, but it has a finite supply, meaning you can't make more of it like paper money. This is what drives a relatively stable value. Also, unlike a lot of other metals, gold is not corrosive, so it lasts a long time. Gold hit a seven-year high in March of 2020, right before the economy shut down due to COVID-19. But then it took a hit as investors were forced to sell their gold to cover losses when the economy tanked. That's what's known as a margin call. Basically, sell what you have to save the farm. However, gold bounced back quickly. It regained its original price and even increased its value because gold was in short supply as mines were forced to close due to the pandemic. During the 2008 recession, the price of gold rose 24%, but it wasn't a straight shot to the top. It bounced around, dropping 10%, rising 30%, and over the course of two years, eventually settling at 24% increase. It never fell as much as the stock market. If there were a collapse in the monetary system, gold coins, jewelry, nuggets, anything would likely be the most sought-after backup currency, making the old adage, the gold standard, very real. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night could stop the U.S. Post Office from delivering your mail. But the future of the USPS is now very uncertain. 
post office predates the Constitution. Benjamin Franklin was the first postmaster general. The post office was formally established in 1787 when the Constitution was established to encourage the delivery of mail over state lines as a way for the federal government to make more money. The Postal Act of 1792 established the modern foundation of the post office. It ensured privacy. Death was one of the possible punishments for stealing mail. It lowered mail rates so that newspapers could be accessible to the public and promoted expansion into new settlements through new postal routes. Today, the USPS processes and delivers 472.1 million mail pieces each day. All government mail, including social security payments, tax returns, and absentee ballots go through the USPS. The USPS both competes with and works with the private sector to deliver packages, especially during the last mile or the final leg of the journey. This is because the USPS is the only carrier that touches every residential and business address in the nation. In 1970, the Postal Reorganization Act held that the Postal Service would receive zero tax dollars for operating and should begin behaving like a business, relying on the sale of postage, products, and services to fund itself. By the 1980s, Congress had stopped giving direct subsidies. In the mid-2000s, the Postal Service's finances had started to tank, largely because Congress passed a law that required the Postal Service to pay for post-retirement health care to its employees, a requirement no other federal agency or private corporation must comply with. By 2018, the USPS accrued a total debt of $143 billion, double its annual revenue. Without additional funding from either Congress or the President, the Post Office's finances are on shaky ground, along with its ability to process mail. The Federal Reserve, a.k.a. the Fed, has been raising and lowering interest rates throughout U.S. history. An interest rate is the added cost charged for borrowing money, and conversely, the added benefit gained when lending money. Say Gary borrows $100 from his mom. As a repayment for borrowing that money, mom sets Gary's interest rate to 3%. So, until Gary pays her the $100 back, he pays his mom $3 a month. In this scenario, Gary's mom is playing the part of the Fed, which sets the central benchmark interest rate in the U.S. known as the Federal Funds Rate. Specifically, a committee in the Fed known as the Federal Open Market Committee sets the rate at a meeting eight times each year. The Fed's rate directly affects banks, which not only lend to you or me, but also lend to each other. When one bank lends to another, there's a charge that must be paid for borrowing that money. The weighted average for all these overnight negotiations between banks is determined in large part by the federal funds rate. Whether the Federal Reserve wants to raise or lower interest rates depends on the state of the economy. When the economy is doing poorly, like during the Great Recession of 2009 or the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic, the Fed typically lowers rates while trying to control inflation. When the Fed lowers the federal funds rate, banks typically follow suit and lower their interest rates, making it cheaper for businesses and people to borrow money for big purchases. Lower interest rates means it's less profitable to keep money in the bank, so there's more of an incentive to spend and invest instead of saving. Mortgage rates, auto loans, student loans, and borrowing costs on credit cards will all likely go down. This will kickstart spending in the economy, which in turn, in theory, leads to more job growth. When the economy is doing really well, like during the booms around 2005 and 2017, the Fed typically raises interest rates, causing greater incentive to save than to spend. As COVID-19 rages on, communities of color are getting hit the hardest and dying at higher rates than white Americans. Although COVID is more deadly for older people, more white Americans are in this age bracket, the mortality rate for black Americans is still 3.7 times as high as that of white Americans. Latinos, Pacific Islanders, and indigenous Americans have also been hit disproportionately harder. Undocumented immigrants likely have been too, but it is unknown how many have COVID-19 because many fear getting tested due to fears of deportation. Experts point to structural inequities like living in areas with underfunded schools and barriers to higher education that often lead to lower paying jobs. Many of these jobs are deemed essential, so they're out in their communities in higher numbers and unable to stay home. People from racial and ethnic minority groups are also more likely to live in multi-generational housing, making the virus easier to spread. About one in five American adults under age 65 are at higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19 due to underlying health problems. Yet these underlying health issues are more common in communities of color. These groups are also less likely to have health insurance. Even for those that do have health care, 
lack of transportation, child care, language differences, and discrimination in healthcare systems sometimes prevents them from seeking care. Some studies also show that discrimination and racism in daily life can lead to chronic and toxic stress that increases the vulnerability to infectious diseases like COVID-19. People of color also tend to live in more communities that are adjacent to plants and factories that emit air pollution, making them more susceptible to asthma and hypertension, which increases the risk of death from COVID-19. Doesn't seem like he's got any good news, but at least there's some information there we can use. You have to shout out USA Today for that video. Online at usatoday.com forward slash story forward slash news. The nation has an article posted by Jordan Culver, published 8.29 p.m. Eastern Time, October 11th, 2020. That would have been Sunday night, and today is Hot Topic Tuesday, October 13th. It is 2.22 p.m. on the West Coast. The Nation's article says, Attorney... Ben Crump calls for comprehensive investigation after Florida police rule Nevin Baker's hanging death as suicide. who reported 
Seeing a man hanging from a tree, according to a case report from the Orlando Police Department. Three officers at the scene tried to help Baker, according to the report. One officer grabbed Baker, quote, by the lower half, end quote while the other two cut a white rope in order to get Baker on the ground. Officers were not able to find a pulse once he was on the ground, police said in the report. Hate crime law in Georgia Georgia governor signs hate crime law in wake of Ahmad Arbery shooting. And then back to the story of Devon Baker in Orlando. While police and the medical examiner's office have ruled Baker's death a suicide, on Sunday tweeted that Baker's quote, hands were tied teeth missing and face bruised end quote with the hashtag justice for Nevon Crump added quote, we demand transparency and a comprehensive investigation so we know exactly what happened. Close quote. And Ben Crump tweeted, Yvonne Baker was found hanging from a tree in Orlando and Orlando police quickly ruled his death a suicide but now we learn his hands were tied teeth missing and face bruised. We demand transparency and a comprehensive investigation so we know exactly what happened. Shahanda James, Baker's mom, told the Sentinel she noticed injuries to Baker's nose, forehead, and jaw when she saw him in the morgue. She told the newspaper she has no reason to believe her son killed himself. Quote, we're not going to let this go. The community is not going to let this go. James told the newspaper. The Orlando Police Department released a statement Friday calling Baker's death a suicide. Officials demand investigation after ICE agents stopped black jogger in Boston. Quote, we have seen social media posts regarding a man who was found deceased in Barker Park. This is a tragic case of suicide and it is difficult for investigators to discuss details publicly out of respect to the victim's privacy and that of his family, OPD said.
outside hanging. The other headline officials demand investigation after ICE agents stopped black jogger in Boston. That was a whew, they insert these different links to their other stories. Back to the bakery story, repeating quote we had seen social media posts regarding a man who was found deceased in Barker Park. This is a tragic case of suicide and it is difficult for investigators to discuss details publicly out of respect to the victim's privacy and that of his family. Close quote OPD said Orlando Police Department. A GoFundMe account was set up by Baker's sister for his funeral arrangements, according to the Sentinel. There are times where, according to the law, in the state of California, there are times where the law requires that a police report is written by certain legal statutes, certain legal regulations. And in most cases, the police are going to follow those even if they personally don't agree. They are going to have to follow those laws and statutes and regulations. And on top of that, their police department manuals, which can be huge, I'll just put it that way, and it gets bigger every single day. They have a whole line, a whole chain of command that will sign off on those reports, read them, and kick them back if there's anything that's not right. So it's I know there's exceptions to every every rule and every city police department is different and they have uh, their own set of rules, regulations, and manuals, laws that they have to follow for that state or that city. But when the original police report is written, that's not the end of the story. There are always, always the investigators will look at the police report if they decide they need to go out, especially in a case of a murder or suicide, homicide, where there's death involved, or where there's children involved, or, or rape, any serious felony crime like that, the, de- the detectives are going to go out, they're going to write reports, they're going to follow up, and they may have an ongoing investigation open for years. So the first report is not the last word. Just, uh, so just FYI, if you or your friends or family are ever involved, it's a very shocking, shocking event for this family or any other family to have to experience, and it won't make sense at the time the family members and the survivors are going through this horrible, horrendous experience. Their mind is not in a place where they can say, okay, well, this is just one small step in the long investigation. They're not able to, to go there. But for the rest of us, we need to know, we, we know there will be more investigation when there's a serious, when there's a death that's um, considered homicide or anything that's not a natural death. It's going to require
require more time than just the initial uh, first officers on the scene. And even if it's a, um, a natural death and the they police or coroner come in to take possession of the remains, there are still going to be reports from different, not only the police department, but the coroner's office, and there may be even reports in the city attorney or the district attorney's offices and the other offices. Um, just for example, if it's a hazmat uh, spill in the area, then there may be reports written by the fire department if their hazmat staff is housed under the fire department or building and safety may even have to write reports so um, in other words the police report is not the be all and end all and even the uh, everyday police report of petty thefts or misdemeanors or stolen properties or traffic accidents there's you know there's it's common for supplemental reports to be written so um, that's not really a hot button issue if the police the original police report has uh, categorized a crime or a death a certain way that that doesn't make it permanent so it's not really a, a big hurdle but it's always good to have these stories out there because it's information and it's a it's a stepping stone or <coughs> excuse me <coughs> exhausted all leads and at this time see that's that's going to be in the police reports at this time because they understand that there's always a a trail of papers and documents and that things change from minute to minute officers repeating quote officers have exhausted all leads and at this time, there is no evidence of foul play or any kind of physical struggle, end quote, the police department said in a statement. And see, you know, the minute they write their reports, they turn them in. Minute by minute, things develop. People can walk into the front doors the police station and say or even call say I need to speak to someone I have information and I saw something but I didn't feel safe about hanging around or they could say anything you know to to completely overturn what's in the report 
but when the officers walk up or, or roll up on a call that they've received, they've been given certain information. In this case, they said they read on social media about Barker Park, a man was deceased in Barker Park. So, you know, they have to, actually, they're just recording the information that they've received what they saw, what they did. That's what goes in their police reports. That's what the courts, that's what will stand up in court. Everything else they put in there, the judge is going to tell them, that's hearsay. It's not admissible in court. Haven't you been to the academy? Haven't you been trained in report writing? See, they don't get to just make up facts, and if they do, because they already know the consequences, they could they could end up in jail. They could end up, you know, without a way to feed themselves and their family. So they're going to have to follow a certain format. You know, they're going to as soon as they turn their report in, they're going to have a number of people, their supervisors. Detectives, the uh, office staff is going to go to their supervisor and say, you know what, give this back to him. This is not right. You know, so (laughs) they really know that there's a way they have to do things. They can't just make everything up. Okay, where were we? Officers have exhausted all leads, and at this time, there is no evidence of foul play or any kind of physical struggle, the police department said in a statement. Okay, there's another link. Quote, the medical examiner also investigated and ruled the cause of death is suicide. Our detectives continue to support the victim's family where they can. We are keeping the victim, his family, and friends in our thoughts during this difficult time. End quote. Robert Fuller's death in Palmdale, California. Yeah, another really young 20-something man. Well, he wasn't the only one found out there in Palmdale. That's in the San Fernando Valley. Very hot out there. Case is similar to that of another black man found hanging from a tree. Robert Fuller's death in Palmdale, California, led to a public outcry for a police investigation after the 24-year-old's death was initially ruled a suicide. Authorities again ruled the death a suicide after an an investigation. A second California man, 38-year-old Malcolm Harsh, was also found hanged over the summer, which saw hate crimes and violence against black Americans amid protests for racial justice. His death in Victorville was also ruled a suicide. See, and these are just the ones that were Yeah. Uh-huh.
business as usual. And that's an improvement from us. Well, this is, this is maybe shocking for some people, but they like, um, I'm sure it still happens, but hopefully it doesn't happen as much. People in South Central, southern area of Los Angeles can tell you things that you may not even be able to handle as a grown adult that are accustomed to world events that aren't that charitable. <laughs> but um, the people in southern Los Angeles can tell you some stories like this that will rock your world. This is something they are well acquainted with. It happens all the time for them. It's hard to believe, but leave it or leave it alone. doubt their stories. There was a time where I used to doubt most of the things that I heard. I would just dismiss it as just uh, exaggeration. But now I know it's not, it's not that way. Orlando and I hope the family in Orlando is listening in they told me they would tune in to the show I sure hope they hear this story I'll have to make sure send them a text make sure they hear this story charged after 12 girls found in his house in Pennsylvania. Written by John Bacon, USA Today. Oh, June 19, 2016. Really? Well, we're not going to go that far back, but I won't even give the man's name because when I read the story, it sounded to me sort of uh, I won't say unfair to the man, but it sounded to me as though it was a rush to judgment because this man was smeared like this when after you read the whole story, you find out that there's really no evidence there to smear this man like this, you see. And, um, I guess we have to have an open mind when we read this in the media. Because, you know, Pennsylvania, you have the Quakers and the Amish and have different religious groups throughout the Midwest you're going to find different types of religious groups they they have been saying for some time how they feel so oppressed and they they feel so much um, animus toward their religion so we have to be mindful that people have rights and just because they their lifestyle or their religion or their race or whatever may not be the same as ours that is no reason to just jump up and say well this is a good story to write that this man has 12 girls in his house and you know you read it and you find out later that 
parents actually placed them in a foster care setting. So here you've made this man look like he's done the worst possible thing in the world when you know there's no law against a single man being a foster parent. It's it's just a tragedy that they have his picture, his photo, and everything else plastered all over the media, and they haven't found any evidence that the man did anything wrong, including what the kids say, but they, um, they're taking the, the word of neighbors that who knows whether they're good or bad neighbors. Maybe they are good neighbors. They may say something carelessly. And then this man, you know, there goes his character, there goes his credibility. So, you know, that's... Like I said, I read the story and I... Yeah, if I wanted to to be biased and, and look for ghosts around every corner and that type of thing. Yeah, I could feel, oh, wow, he's really cool. Maybe he's not, maybe he just loves children. Maybe he doesn't want to see children suffer. And it could be that he understands how vulnerable women and children are. You know, if, if parents come to one of us and say their situation doesn't allow them provide for their child and they trust us to take temporary custody are we going to just walk away are we just going to walk away from our neighbor maybe we've known the neighbor and grown to love the neighbor and their family are we just going to walk away and say no not me you'll never have my photo see children suffer, starving, malnourished, and not provided for, I mean, it happens, it happens all the time, people look the other way, but not everybody can be the same, so, you know, I'd rather give this man the benefit of the doubt. I'm not being biased because he's a man or because he's a certain age or a certain race. I don't think so. If anyone will stand up for a child or take care of a child, you know, I'm not going to just jump on anybody's back for, for trying to protect a child without evidence that they've done something wrong. That's why nobody would, (laughs) no attorney would have me on their jury. They won't because, (laughs) you know, if you can, if you can tell an attorney that, you know, there's pros and cons, there's more than one side to their story, they're not going to want you on their jury. Prosecutor, anyhow. Maybe the defense attorney might, but not a prosecutor. Their perspective is indict and promote. Like Daniel Cameron, our guy in Kentucky, in the Brianna Taylor case, on the short list. Come to find out, he has been on that short list for some time for a possible appointment to the Supreme Court. He's been on that list for a while, and on other lists to maybe replace some of the Kentucky senators for a while. So he's maybe getting desperate for his next promotion, and who knows, maybe that's why he did a slapdash job on the 
Like they are.